0: Hello, everybody. Are you ready? Are you ready? We're gonna talk about Genesis. Not the British, but yay. Not the British prog rock band, although I, I like Genesis, that Genesis. Now we're gonna be talking in, we're, we're in a three weeks into a series in the book of Genesis, and uh, the book in the Bible, so I'm very excited about that. Um, just a couple of things right up front. Uh, I'm teaching today, and I forgot my Bible. Awesome. And I, I did all the prep, my Bible's like a, a ESV, English Standard Version. So I left it at home and I'm like, I'm looking around the church for like an ESV Bible. And, and my daughter and I are like hunting around and all, there, there are all these different versions. And we, we found one, that's the, uh, the Holy Bible for kids. We found one in the lost and found. <laughs> ESV, it is well loved. And Eleanor Weber, thank you, thank you. For lending me your Bible if you are here or online uh, come get your Bible when we're done today but anyway so that's that's a uh, remark one remark two uh, people that know me they know like I wear a hat when I'm like doing the singing thing and then I and then my hat for teaching is no hat that's why like I, I've never done that but uh, Friday I was emptying the dishwasher and I brought my head up right under the corner of a cabinet. So I've got this really nice like Harry Potter mark on my forehead. It's the chosen one thing. So, so I'm doing it. I was like, I wonder if I'll ever wear a hat while I'm teaching. And today's the day I have an excuse. I know some of you, you Bible nerds, you're like, in 1 Corinthians it says, don't wear a hat, man. But it also says in that same book, greet each other with a holy kiss. And not one person who's told me to take off my hat has ever greeted me with a kiss. So I think I'm on, you know, steady ground here for us to move forward. All right. Enough of that. Today we're talking about what Genesis is talking about, which is image and identity. We talk about that a lot, don't we? We're like fixated on that in our culture. We've got these little phones and we take these selfies all the time. Why? Because we're interested in ourselves. society experts when they're trying to name generations, and the current generation, Gen Z, which that's the name we've kind of landed on, but for a while it was like, gee, I wonder what this, na- what this generation's gonna be called, and, and for a while they wanted to call it the duck face generation. It's like, what? It's because, you know, when they do the selfie, they make the duck face. <laughs> it's just duck face. Uh, we are we are fascinated and fixated with image and identity. Uh, it's all over culture. You know, Lady Gaga's got her songs like uh, "Born This Way" and "Hair." T. Swift, she's got the song "Me." If we want to bring it back, uh, go old school. Billy Joel's got "My Life," and then Sinatra, "I Do It My Way." Right? We're into me. We're into identity and image, and uh, it's because every generation, every culture fixates on this because it's about questions that every generation and every culture asks. Who am I? Why am I here? We'll enter Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, It talks about that stuff. You might be thinking, what does a 4,000-year-old document written halfway across the world in some wilderness have to do with us here right now? Well, let's take a look at some of the things that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 actually address that we're going to be talking about today. Look at the screen. Where do we come from? What does it mean to be human? How do we form our identity? What's the value of human life? What are we here for? Why is there male and female? What's the purpose of marriage? What is the purpose of community? What is our responsibility to the world around us? How do we relate to God, each other, and the created world? You think this 4,000-year-old document doesn't have anything to say to us? It's amazing how prescient and poignant the Bible is speaking to things that we are wrestling with at this very moment and in this very place. So we're going to dive in uh, to the text. We're going to be spending most of our time in Genesis chapter 2, but a little bit of it in Genesis 1 verses 26 through 28. And the focus today is going to be about the creation of humans, the creation of man and woman. Why we're here, how we were created, and why. A couple of introductory remarks just to remind you, when we open the Bible, I want you to picture that you are walking into a library. The Bible is a collection of books by one author, God. He uses different writers along the way. He lets them graciously, he lets them use their voice to tell his story. It's a story about a God who fills, he creates a universe to fill it with his goodness. He creates people to enjoy his presence and take his presence into the world as his image bearing ambassadors and representatives. It's a story about that people believing the lie of a rebellious deceiver. They reject God's goodness. They choose to define for themselves what is good, right, true, and beautiful. And they cut themselves off from the life giving presence of God. They sentenced themselves to death and slavery to this deceiver and to their own sin and deception. It's a story about this God then entering into the mess of humanity and rescuing them through his own sacrificial love and then offering to rejoin in relationship with him, to be his people and then to reform us and reform our image and restore it so that we can again enjoy his presence and take his goodness out of the world. That is the story of the Bible. So even though we're in Genesis 1 and 2, we are talking about that story. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're talking about that. Now the other thing is, since we're talking about the origin of humanity, some of you in here will be like, ah, like science says one thing and the Bible says another. So there's kind of a conflict. Well, Bill addressed this last week. But just there's no, that's just an apparent conflict. It's not a real conflict of substance. The Bible is only in conflict with an account of creation or our origin that does not involve a creator. Okay, science tells us the truth about God's world. The Bible tells us the truth with God's word. They work together, right? Just because we have a picture, saying saying you don't believe the Bible because you have science is like saying I don't believe in paintings because we have pictures. It's kind of dumb, right? They're, they do two different things. Just because you have a picture of a water lily, like in an encyclopedia, let's look at a, there's a nice picture of a water lily. It's very accurate, right? It caught a, a moment in time. There it is. But that doesn't mean that Monet's paintings of water lilies in his garden, right there, are irrelevant, or that those water lilies didn't exist, or that they're telling us something wrong about water lilies. In fact, that painting probably tells us some things that the picture don't about how what, you know, that moment that Monet was there looking at them. All right. So science and the Bible work together. They both reveal more of God's word and God's world to us. So there we go. Enough preamble. We're going to pray and then we're going to cruise through the scripture with some scenic pullouts now and then. Here we go. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you've given us your word. That is true. It recalibrates us. It resets us. um, And it reforms us. So we want to be formed and shaped by the truth of your word today. And we also want to recognize that this world that you have made, it shouts out who you are. You're the God of wonders. The universe declares your majesty. From the beginning of the world, your invisible qualities, your eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Uh, being understood by what's made. So we're without excuse, Lord. So we want to tap into the inner uh, call of our heart that does say that we are not the product of atoms organizing themselves according to presently acting natural law, but we've been directly and intentionally created for a reason and for a person, and that's you. So I help uh, humble our hearts today to hear from you, uh, inform and shape uh, so that we worship you in how we think and how we love and how we live based on your truth. In the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> we're going to open up Eleanor's Bible and read from it. Um, yeah, so, as we go, there's going to be not all of the text that we're reading today will go on the screens, but um, some of the key moments that need some, you uh, know, uh, a little attention are gonna pop up on the screen, but if you have a Bible, I do encourage you, follow along. We also have the paper ones, uh, you know, dispersed throughout, and since it's Genesis one, you know, just page one, it's pretty easy to find. Uh, But we're gonna start in verse 26, okay? Here we, here we go, here we go, where are we? Ah, yeah, water lilies, we did that, here we go. God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Okay, first scenic (laughs) pullout. We didn't get very far, did we? Uh, This is a really important pattern break for us. It's like a little speed bump. When you're driving along in the Bible and you notice pattern and then the pattern breaks, that should be a, whoa, something happened, something important. Let's slow down and think about this. Up until this point in Genesis, we have let the, or let there be, right? That's the pattern, you know, let there be light. Uh, let there be an expanse let there be but now we have let us this is something different it's to make us pay attention that something important and different is about to happen and we also have us so who is this us because up until this point it says God and it sounds like it's just one God this God that's indescribable uh, who's just speaking things into existence so it's it's clearly one God so far on the first page of the Bible, but now it's this one God that says, us. Now, if we don't read backwards into the Bible, let's just let, the, let's just let it reveal itself. What this is supposed to do is sort of put a shelf in your little theology room. It says, huh, I need to make room for a God that is one, but has a complex identity that allows for an us to happen. So as we go further into the Bible, we will be able to come back and believe what Bill said and what most scholars say is that this is the first clue the Bible is giving you about the triune nature of God. Three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in fact, we've seen them, all these personalities at work on the first page. We have God the creator, but then he speaks. That's the word of God. Jesus is often called the word of God. And we have the spirit hovering over the waters. So we have these three personalities of God already operative on the first page. So that's cluing us in that this is a complex God, but he is one God. He is one of one, a unique category. No one like him. All right. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, if you're following along in a Bible, you'll notice that that little verse there is formatted different. It's indented. That's to let you know this is like a poem or a song. And it's a moment, a break in the narrative, where we need to develop something that's very important that they want you to pay attention to. It's kind of like in a musical, when, you know, the story's going along. I don't watch a lot of musicals, but as I understand it, You know, they're telling a story and then all of a sudden they want to develop the plot or the character and, oh, I feel a song coming on and they all sing and then all the bystanders somehow all know the choreography and the harmony and it's a miracle. But that's what, the the Bible is doing something here. It's telling you, we need to develop this. You need to stop and meditate and ponder on the meaning of this. So let's do that. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female he created them. Okay, so some observations. First, the word image is the is a Hebrew word tselem okay? And everywhere else in the Bible that word means idol. Okay? A carved, shaped image that is a visible representation of an invisible God. We are God's little idols. Now, the word idol makes me uncomfortable because everywhere else in the Bible, idol is bad. But here on the first page of the Bible, we find that God has made us in his image, a visible representation, a little idol. And the word likeness is demut in Hebrew. That means like a a model. So we're like these, we're like little minifigs of God. These representative images that are supposed to visibly represent him in the world. Also, male and female, he created them. So as we're establishing what it means to be a human created by God in his image, God specifically calls out male and female. a uniquely empowering message in the ancient Near East for women to be specifically called out as made in the image of God. So we have here, and we're going to get into this more, the significance of it, but not only are we considered his image-bearing idols, but there are sexed bodies specifically called out as part of that image-bearing nature. That conflicts with the current uh, worldview and understanding that we have of what it means to be a self, okay? Our current worldview that we're kind of marinated in, so we don't even really realize that we're stuck in it, is that our sense of self is something inside us. And and the external world is something that needs to be manipulated and changed for me to express my true self, which is inside. The Bible says that while you do have an inside part of you, and we're going to get to that, that the physical sexed body is part of that image-bearing nature, not something to be manipulated or changed to line up with an internal sense of self. I know that's an important thing to know. And if if what I just said right now for you, if you're coming in or you're watching online and this is triggering you right now, I just want you to hang with me. This is a liberating, hope-filled, life-giving message for your identity. So hang with me. All right, God blessed them, said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, we have a, a, a nature, an image-bearing nature as male and female, and now we have this mandate, a calling that God uh, has given. To fill, to multiply, to be fruitful, to rule and subdue. Now, ruling and subduing, that's, um, Those probably have some negative connotations for you. So we need to unpack those a little bit. And part of those have to do if we go back to Selem. Let's talk about idol for a second because God has things to say about idols. In fact, uh, second commandment in the 10 commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse four. Let's take a look at that. Hi, sorry. (laughs) I'm gonna do the panther today. I'm gonna scare them. Oh, sorry. Uh, You're good. Who's back there? All right. Uh, You shall not make for yourself, uh, commandment two, sorry, squirrel, Uh, a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven. You shall not make for a carved image. That's the word Selem. Okay. Or any likeness or anything in heaven above or earth beneath or that is in water under the earth. Do you see the parallel between this and what God says to rule and subdue in Genesis 1? You know, the earth and the birds and the, it's covering all of creation. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? Because God already made a Atzelim. He made us. He doesn't want us to make another one, and he doesn't want us to bow down to another one. Because that would mean, that would mean giving ourselves over to another God. And beyond that, it means giving yourself to the enemy, either as a prisoner or as someone who's fighting on the other side. Now, why am I talking about a war all of a sudden? because God mentions it here. I think the Bible cautiously, I I believe this, but I also believe it open-handedly. This this isn't an essential, but I think it's important. Um, Some people don't agree with this, but this is my interpretation of the word subdue. When God says to rule and subdue, okay, rule just means to care for. It means to be responsible for. It speaks of love and responsibility. It's a moral call. And even if you don't believe the Bible, we have a sense, all humanity has a sense that we're kind of in charge of this place and we ought to do, we ought to treat it well, all right? I mean, cows are shooting out methane all the time, all right? And messing up the green, with greenhouse gases coming out of cows all the time. But we don't attribute that as like a moral failing of the cows. Stop it with the methane. You're destroying the, you know. Uh, but for us, we have all these conversations and, and there's disagreement all over the place about what we're supposed to do about the climate. But the whole context of these conversations is a moral context, isn't it, for humans? We assume a morality and a responsibility for this place. Whether you believe in God or don't, everybody kind of assumes that humans have a moral responsibility to behave a certain way. We don't expect that of cows. That's what rule means. God is saying, you are responsible. I'm giving this to you. I'm giving it as an act of self Giving love, out of my abundance, not out of my lack. But I'm giving something to you. But he also says subdue, okay? Why is he saying subdue? That word in the Bible is violent. It's a violent war term, it means to conquer. Now if God has made everything, and he says everything is very good, why is he telling humans on page one, subdue? What is there to subdue out there? I think what the Bible is doing is giving us a clue looking ahead to chapter three and beyond that there is already an active rebellion against God's purpose his character and his goodness and his presence in the world in Genesis three we see the personality that is behind this rebellion in the serpent and in Satan but God has made man and woman as his image bearing ambassadors to fill the world with his goodness in the context of a war that makes more sense when we look at commandment number two. Do not bow down to other selim. You are giving in to the enemy. Okay, it's a war context. Let's move on. Next page. Now, Genesis chapter two, verse four. We're gonna get, we're gonna get into the personal nature of how humans were created. So Genesis one is very broad and sweeping. It speaks of the power of God to just speak things into existence. But in Genesis two, it starts to zoom in. This is not like a different creation account. They're like, well, it might've happened like Genesis one, but it might've happened like Genesis two. So they work together. And Genesis two is where we go. Whoop, let's talk about humans. Let's talk about you now and how God made you. And the first clue that we have for that is in verse 4. So these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So Lord God is different. In Genesis 1, we have God. The Hebrew word there is Elohim. So all the different nations around the area, all the different people groups in the ancient Near East, they all had Elohims. So Elohim isn't a name. It's just a title. It's a title for a spiritual being and a God. So the Babylonians had Elohims, you know, they had Marduk that helped create in a battle as they destroyed um, the chaos waters. And uh, in in the Egyptian creation story, they have the Elohim Ra, and people are created when Ra's eye uh, has tears, and the tears fall down and they become people, right? So there's all these Elohim out there, and in Genesis 1, we just see there's an Elohim. But we don't really know much about this Elohim other than he's unspeakably power with no rival and he just speaks things into existence. But in Genesis two, verse four, we see the Lord God, and in Hebrew, that's Yahweh Elohim. The personal name of God is revealed in chapter two, Yahweh, is the name that God called himself at the burning bush to Moses. And remember, Moses is writing and compiling Genesis for the Israelites as they're wandering in the desert. They've been delivered from Egypt. They're trying to figure out who they are as a people. So their Elohim conquered all these Egyptian Elohims and has now brought them through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. And now they are learning who they are as a people by learning who their God is. And here he is, Yahweh Elohim. So they're reading this. They're going, oh... The Red Sea guy, he's the one that made everything? Okay, tell me more. So let's look at more. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, was watering the whole face of the ground. This part echoes what we see in chapter one, but on a localized version. So chapter one, remember what it says? Now the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So we have uncultivated, formless, and void, unpopulated. And then we have uh, this darkness, this swirling, and you know, Spirit of the Lord is hovering over the water. So we got this water and, and darkness and deep and uncultivated and unpopulated. It's made, it's raw material that God has made, but he's gonna bring order to it in, in chapter one. And he does it on a grand scale. In Genesis two, what do we have? No bush of the field is yet in the land. No small plant of the field has yet sprung up for the Lord hadn't caused it to rain in the land. No uncultivated, no bush, no plant. And you know, there's no man to work the ground. It's unpopulated, it's unordered. And there's this mist coming up, watering the whole. So there's sort of this water just kind of floating out there. So it's the same pattern as in Genesis one, but it's zoomed in for us to get really local and personal with a personal God. Why is it getting more personal? Because it's, he wants us to know who we are. And here's where it gets very personal. Verse seven, then the Lord God formed the man of dust. The dust is Adama, which is where we get the word Adam. So Adam is a dirt creature. Okay, that should keep us humble. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. I love this. It's something to keep us very humble and also something to encourage and lift us up. So God formed us. And that word, the connotation there, is of a skilled craftsman, an artisan. So it isn't kind of like you just kind of went, let me just put some dirt together. He's sculpting and shaping and forming with direct intent and care the raw material that will make humanity. And after he carefully sculpts this shape and forms it, he breathes life. It's an act of giving. In the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian origin story, the gods create humanity because they don't want a bunch of busy work and drudgery. Okay. It's a self-serving act in this creation act. God has no lack and he creates as a self giving act. He shapes carefully as an artist. And then the picture is supposed to be this face to face intimate moment where the life of God is given into this inanimate material it becomes a living thing in the image of God for God so loves that he gave it's the character of God that should inform how we think about our own identity we're little dirt creatures but with the life of God breathed into us and we're body and soul we're complex mixture of material reality and immaterial reality. Our bodies are important. They've been carefully crafted and shaped by God. So as we're wrestling with identity, one of the things we have to reckon with is this thing that we can touch. It's not something that we should carelessly try to manipulate or abuse or alter. We need to reckon with the fact that part of our image-bearing nature is that we have a physical body that God has designed and shaped. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. We're going to jump ahead to verse 18. In between 7 and 18, God plants a garden and he puts man in the garden and it's filled with good choices and just one choice that God says, don't do that, it's dangerous, it'll kill you. But the rest of the choices are all filled with life and puts Adam in there to take care of this place. But then he says, in verse 18, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. All right, a couple words again. Sorry, we're just we're Bible nerding it today. All right, uh, but these words are important because in Hebrew they might mean something different than you know, the emotional attachment we have to certain words. So not good. Oh, well this is good, Tori. By the way, my daughter's trying to follow me and I'm bouncing all over the place. Sorry. Thank you, Tori. Um, before we get to air and the Ged, we're going to talk about not good. Not good it is not tov. It's like a functional goodness, okay? It's not like, um, well, like it wouldn't be like, oh, I don't like this water because it tastes like uh, iron. Um, it's more like um, this, this thing isn't good because it leaks, okay? It's a function thing. It's not like, I don't like the pizza. The pizza isn't good because I don't like the taste. It's the pizza oven isn't good because it won't turn on and I can't make pizzas. Okay? So when God says it's not good, he's saying it's not functional. This does not work for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Helper fit. Helper in Hebrew, etzer. It means like assistance in a time of need. And fit means neged, which is corresponding and according to the opposite So this is different. This isn't like helper, like, hey, Adam needs somebody to help wash the dishes and like cook him some food. Helper, etzer, etzer in the Bible, God is often called Israel's etzer, and it's so often in the context of dire need in a conflict, military help, where Israel calls on God to be the etzer and rescue. The idea here is clearly the etzer needs to be someone with capabilities and strengths that the man, the Adam alone does not have and will not be able to carry out the image bearing nature and mission of God without an etzer, someone who is capable. Right, the picture you should have maybe is, um, well, if you haven't seen Endgame, I'm sorry, I'm going to spoil it for you, Avenger Endgame. But, uh, you know, when Steve Rogers is kind of at, he's been whooped by Thanos and he's about to, he's all alone, and then he gets a little call on his little radio where he says, hey, Steve, on your left, and then all the good guys show up. That, that's, that's the picture of an eights there. People coming with the resources and the help and the power to do what needs to be done. That's an eights there, and that's what God is saying, man needs something like that. Now, fit, neged, corresponding to the opposite of it's a kind of a clumsy translation but it's very important it goes back to again the sexed nature of our embodied nature corresponding to yet opposite of it's like a mirror for man somebody who who works with but is also different from and not to be graphic but we got to go there biologically, anatomically, men and women, the way we reproduce, there is a corresponding and opposite build, isn't there? Okay. That's what's being, that's the picture that we're getting here. For man to be able to carry out a mandate that says be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with my goodness, he cannot do it alone. It cannot be done as an individual thing Image bearing is an us thing, not just a me thing. So for it to happen, it must start somewhere. And so it must start with a man and a woman, an etzer neged, a helper fit, corresponding to yet opposite of. This is where we see the foundation of why God has marriage. It is a, a structure designed to create protection and to birth the life of and all other human loves. See, in our <clears throat> church culture and, and also the rest of society, we idolize sexual love. We make it the apex, the end goal. And you haven't really loved until you get there. You know, what base are you on? Right? <laughs> totally crass, but we, you know, we call it home base. Genesis inverts that. The Bible inverts that. It says, it is not the end, it's the beginning. It is the necessary beginning for all other valued human loves that belong in God's plan and his mandate for image-bearing people. Without man and woman coming together to multiply, we can't have the love of fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and brothers and sisters and friends. These are all loves in community that are part of God's plan to fill the earth with his goodness. If he didn't care about filling the earth with his goodness, he would have made man, breathe life into him, said, have fun in the garden. Let's just hang out. That's all we need, but that's not God's nature. His nature is to continue to expand and fill with his goodness and to do it in relationship. So it's a high view of marriage, but it also doesn't idolize marriage. Single people, you're awesome. And you can live out the image-bearing call on your life without ever marrying. Virgins, you're awesome. You can live out a full, flourished, image-bearing life without ever having sex. Can you believe that? Sex is this amazing gift that he gives us. Okay. It's again, it's a, it's a self giving act. He could have made us happy amoebas and we just divide. We start as one and become two. Instead, he makes us two that become one to multiply. It's part of his character and his nature to continue to bring together in order to multiply. We don't have to be controlled by sex or an idealized version of what marriage ought to be. We can put it in its place within God's plan, within his sovereign plan. Now it becomes a gift given, not a God that we worship. Let's not make marriage and sex a telem, an idol, an image that we worship. You got images on your phone all the time. And they're telling you, worship me, worship me, worship this ideal. God says, don't, don't bow down to that. Take my idea for what man and woman and male and female and marriage and sex and love, what that is supposed to be in light of what I have called you to do. Be image bearers. So God causes, causes a deep sleep to fall on the man and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place. With flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. And the man says, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. That word rib, tsella, it actually it's an architectural term. The only time it's referred to as rib in the Bible is right here. Every other time it's talking about like the planks used in the tabernacle or the pillars in the temple it's the idea here is sacred space. God lives at temples are a place where God comes to dwell and meet with people. The picture that is being painted here is that our bodies, our lives are not only supposed to be visible representations as idols, but they're supposed to be sacred spaces where God lives and dwells. Man and woman, you are both sacred spaces our bodies our souls our sacred spaces we cannot separate body and soul and still be human we have to remember these are essential integral inseparable parts of our image bearing nature now when i look in the mirror i do not say sacred space i do not think that there's all kinds of things about my body i was like you know i could be a little more sacred god if you you know more here less there. It doesn't mean you have to be comfortable with your body, but it doesn't mean you have to it does mean we need to reckon with it. God wants our bodies to be sacred, sacred places where he dwells with us. Genesis 2 ends with a really beautiful picture. It says, "Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh." And the man and his wife were both naked, and we're not ashamed. So here we see the permanence, the desired permanence of marriage, but also a picture of innocence, purity, total freedom, total security. This is the environment that God creates man in, and he wants us to capture that, to think about that. What would it be like to be totally innocent, totally pure, fully known and loved, fully free truly free and secure now take that into the world but as we know we don't feel that way about our image and identity i know i don't feel that way because we are because chapter 3 is coming next week a sin and the fall break this pattern and we find ourselves living more in a cursed world than a blessed world feels like some of you watching this, uh, you, you are truly struggling with an identity crisis. You hate your body. Some of you, it's, a, it's almost a creepy feeling like you, you are in somebody else's body and you don't belong there. You don't connect with how other men and women think and feel and act. You feel uh, disjointed, disconnected. You, you just don't, and, you're wondering, you know, if I ask these questions out loud, would I be shunned? Uh, or would it be listened to? And uh, I'd like to propose to you that while we are not a, we are not a perfect community, this church, um, but we want to be a community of courageous love and biblical faithfulness um, that welcomes all who are earnestly seeking to find the answers to these questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Why do I not feel right find these answers in the life and teachings on the way of Jesus Christ. That's the ethic of this community that we want to welcome you into. It's one of pursuing the life of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the image of God. Let's look at what uh, Colossians chapter 1 has to say about Jesus. It says, He is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. And then again, in Hebrews chapter one, which amplifies this even more, it says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the one that we are called to follow as the true image of God. In Psalm 139, it says that God formed our innermost parts. He knows all of our days. This should make you feel like there is tremendous value in your life. But it's there because God, God placed it there. Your identity is not something you have to search inside of. Forget the, forget the, you know, search your heart. Believe in yourself. Your heart will lie to you. Your identity is secure because God places it there. God brings it and he breathes it into you. And then he gives us a picture of the perfect image, Jesus to follow. This is something both men and women can do. Men, we need you, especially young men. I, I, I feel bad for you. Like, the narrative you have growing up right now is that you're either a, a bumbling idiot or a dangerous predator. It's like, those are your two options. Uh, what would you like to be when you grow up? That, you know, you, and you have to shoulder the sins of patriarchy and just live a life apologetic and quiet, and get out of the way, because you cause a lot of problems. And I just want to say, men, that is not part of the image-bearing mandate that God has put on you. You need to live humbly, lead humbly, and courageously. Fulfill God's mission to fill the world with his goodness in the likeness of Christ. And women, you have been told, some of you have been told, that you're just fragile trophies, or you're dangerous seductresses. Those are not your two options. You are to lead and live courageously and humbly as image bearers of Jesus Christ, following in his pattern. This is for all of us, and this is not easy. This is not easy, but it's right. This message is actually sandwiched between MLK Day and Sanctity of Life Sunday. And I think it's appropriate, because if we carry this image of God with us, then it means when we look back and we think about what Dr. King had to say about the value of humanity and the unity of humanity, we all came from a single pair. That's what this says. Not just inanimate objects that happen to organize themselves We are all brothers and sisters and the dignity of human life demands that we treat each other with respect, not just reactively, but proactively. Where we see injustice, where we see racial superiority raise its head, we actively work to stamp it out. And we're not afraid if that makes us look like we belong to the political party that we don't like. That's giving in to Satan. He wants you to for not do the right thing because you, wanna, you don't want to look the wrong way. Now you're on his turf. Don't be afraid of being, mis, uh, being called something that you're afraid of and then you don't do the right thing. And then when it comes to the life of the unborn and the mother of that unborn... There are women who find themselves with pregnancies that they did not want or did not expect. And both of those lives are powerfully valued by God. And they deserve our protection and our advocacy. The mother and the child. And not just in the womb, all the way to the tomb. These are the the outflows of what it means to live this mandate out. Out. And what you'll find is that there isn't a political party that lines up verse for verse with this. It's just not there. So don't bow down to another idol. Who do we worship? The God who gave us this and gave us the world. We are going to be bumping up against conflict. We are not going to fit in this world, but we are going to shape a community of his goodness that fills the world. How do we do that? We do that through the power of Jesus Christ who modeled it. There's never a moment in the Bible where it seems like Jesus is more interested in talking about issues than people. There's never a moment where he allows culture war to get in the way of his mission. So we are to be active, moving, and filling the world with his goodness. This is not a passive position, but it's also not one where we just bow down. To the ideologies of this world, whether they're right or left, or red or blue. Who are we? We are made in the image of God, and we're being rescued by him and reformed by him in the likeness of Jesus. Now, some of you might feel like you just, you couldn't even start that way, but Jesus is the place to start. Let's, I'm gonna pray, and I want us to, while we pray, um, I'm gonna pray a prayer of repentance and reception of who Jesus is and what it means to give our lives to him. Let's pray together. Lord God, uh, man, thank you for convicting us, but um, giving us hope and healing. Uh, We numb ourselves with lies that keep us from hearing your truth. And we wanna hear your truth today, the truth that sets us free and brings healing. So help us to take on your identity. And uh, we realize our identity has been messed up and broken by our own sin. So Jesus, I'm just asking that you would forgive our sin. And I'm claiming your death on the cross as payment for it. And I'm claiming your resurrection as my own resurrection. My own new life. I want to follow in the pattern of your new humanity. Reform my image to be like you. I want to be your little idol. I wanna take your goodness to every corner of this world. I wanna do it in community, a community of your spirit. So help me do that, in the name of Jesus I pray this, amen. If you prayed that today, straight out these doors, in the center, there's uh, people that can give you resources on what's the next step for you. If you're online, rollinghills.org slash next steps. We're gonna continue worshiping, uh, remembering that if God gave his life to save the world and we should do the same he's our creator he's our rescuer he's our remaker let's worship him together